I've been listening to the cult, ladies and gentlemen. I got that shit stuck on my head. You know, it's funny, like, you don't listen to bands for a long time. And then um, when Shirley Manson was here, I started listening to Garbage again. I started going into some old 90s music, and I went into the cult, which is, I guess, technically, I guess, 90s. I feel like it's 80s. The cult 80s? Yeah, they got big again in the 90s, though. They got big again? Yeah, they had that song on the Gone in the 60 Seconds soundtrack, Still I Rise or something like that. That was the 90s? And Kiss, Last Kiss, or This Kiss, something like that, yeah. Gone in 60 Seconds was the 90s? Yeah. Jesus Christ, time is flying, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, speaking of time, it's time for me to come to motherfucking Texas. Next Friday, I'm at the Verizon one week from today. The Verizon Wireless Theater in Grand Prairie, Texas with Tony Hinchcliffe and Ian motherfucking Edwards. And then July 7th, I'm at the Ka Theater at the MGM Grand. That's in Vegas. Um, and that's with Tony Hinchcliffe as well. Then right after that, I'm at Wise Guys in Salt Lake City, Utah. So the fuck out. Um, that's it. That's it for dates. I got a bunch of shit coming up. I'm going to be coming to Seattle, Sacramento. I'm going to Atlanta, Washington, D.C. I'm going to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Come on. Come on. San Francisco. I'm going to do the theater at Madison Square Garden in New York City, Denver. I'm going back to the Belco Theater. I'm going to do like every six months in Denver, I think. I'm going to do the club, then I'm going to do a giant place. The club, then a giant place. So the Belco. Uh, Detroit. I'm coming to Detroit. People are saying, pussy, how come you're scared to come to Detroit? I'm not. You stop saying that. Coming to Detroit. Coming to Phoenix. Got a lot of shit coming up. JoeRogan.net forward slash tour. Um, those aren't haven't been announced yet, but when they do and the tickets go on sale, I'll let you motherfuckers know about it. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Lyft, L-Y-F-T. You know, the ride-sharing app that you can work for. Well, when you drive for the right ride-sharing app, ladies and gentlemen, every trip can feel like a walk in the park. I don't know what they mean by that. People need to... Like, Really solidify your copy, folks. Lyft makes driving the best job in the world. And Lyft is a ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Lyft believes that being a ride-sharing driver should be fun. And if you're having a good time, so are the passengers. So if you're choosing a ride-sharing company to drive for, go with the company that treats you better, which is Lyft. Only Lyft offers in-app tipping. And when you drive for Lyft, you keep 100% of the tips. Drivers have been paid over $150 million in tips since the feature was introduced. Express Pay lets drivers get paid almost instantly instead of waiting for weeks. And Lyft has even taken care of the guesswork out of picking, have taken the guesswork out of pickups. <sighs> Why speak so good? And then the fucking podcast is over. And my brain's like, bitch, I'm done. With the new AMP device, they use color coding to help passengers find their drivers. Now, you can earn hundreds of dollars a week plus tips, and you want to make more money? Just drive more. It's never been easier to make cash. It's a simple formula. Happy drivers mean happy passengers, and 
that's probably why nine out of ten lift rides get a perfect five star rating. So join the ride sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Go to lift.com forward slash Rogan today and get a five hundred dollar new driver bonus. That's L Y F T dot com forward slash Rogan. Lift.com forward slash Rogan. Limited time only. Terms apply. We're brought to you each and every episode by Onnit.com. Onnit is a total human optimization company, and what we aim to do is fire people up, provide you with awesome information, provide you with all of the tools, whether it's through supplements or through strength and conditioning equipment or through motivational videos or articles on strength and conditioning and exercise physiology and nutrition, all the stuff you need to optimize your time and your performance here on planet Earth. That's what Onnit is all about, and we're fucking fired up about it. If you go to onnit.com, I recommend immediately clicking on the Academy link. It's a section of the of the website that has hundreds of articles. Uh, all sorts of great shit for you to absorb. All of that is free. And we have a physical Onnit Academy, which is in Austin, Texas, an amazing state-of-the-art gym that has all sorts of strength and conditioning routines and classes and great instruction, but also 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu and Bang Muay Thai. Go to onnit.com, check out everything we got, and use the code word ROGAN and you will save 10% off any and all supplements. Last one, life insurance. Do you have it? If you don't, why not? Is it too expensive? Is it a pain in the ass? Well, if you don't have life insurance, what would happen financially if something happened to the primary earner? Life insurance is a good idea to protect the ones around you, but where do you go to find the best prices on the best policy with the best service? Well, policygenius.com is the best online life insurance marketplace, the most accurate quotes from the top A-rated life insurance companies. Policy Genius has placed over $5 billion in life insurance for people like you. Policy Genius has a very simple user-friendly website to shop and compare all the top-rated life insurance companies and give you the best options. They have a licensed customer service team to help you find the best policy at the best price. And when you're there, check out their other insurance offerings like pet insurance. They have pet insurance, Jamie. You want to insure that parakeet? You can do it. Go to policygenius.com today to save over 40% off other prices for life insurance. When, when life insurance Companies compete for your business, you save money. That's Policy Genius, P O L I C G E N I U S dot com. Policy Genius dot com. Zero jargon, zero sales pressure, zero hassle. Life insurance made easy. Free quotes, zero hassle, peace of mind. Don't wait. Go to policygenius.com today. Bam. My guest today is one of the baddest motherfuckers in the world of making movies. I'm a huge fan of this guy's work. It was so cool to sit down with him. I was a little weirded out at first. When you, when you meet someone, you're like, fuck, I love this guy's work. But he was cool as shit. Give it up for Guy Ritchie. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. 
Boom. Yes. Boom. We're live. What's up, brother? How are you, man? How are you, Joe? You got a, a little pocket hanky there? You got the whole square. deal. Well, I tell you, shall I tell you why I wear a pocket square? Please. Because if you don't wear a pocket square, you have the appearance that you've been squeezed into a sports jacket or a suit for conventional reasons that your mum put you in there or you're off to church or something or you're going to the office. Right. As soon as you put a pocket square in there, you own the jacket. It's Hmm. your idea, not someone else's idea. Ooh. Dude, you're thinking several steps ahead. I like it. We're going to get into this, aren't we, Jack? We are going to get into this. Well, we were talking before the podcast about these press junkets and about how you entertain yourself by forcing yourself to use a certain word. Yeah, the danger, the the worst thing in the film business is press junkets. And as you were saying, they're rather ineffective, and that's my suspicion too. They're, not, they're also inefficient and ineffective because you sit in a chair, someone comes in, and they ask you a question, why, how, how good an actor is David Beckham when he's in underpants or whatever it is, and you answer it in some facile fashion. And on the fourth time you answer answer that question you're starting to swat flies that aren't there you're starting to go mad so what happens is you have to play games with yourself so you get someone on the side to throw different words at you like valetudinarian or verisimilitude and then that keeps you occupied because you're thinking when someone asked me about Beckham in his underpants I've somehow got a stick in a verisimilitude and I'll tell you it's not easy And your answers become very creative. Well, to, to ask someone to be sincere and ask the same questions over and over and over again to them, like to have people keep filing in and a new person comes in and asks the same. So tell us about this film and how did this get started? And so uh, who, whose idea was it? So um, I saw a film, John Ballman made Excalibur in about 1980. And uh, I was an impressionable young man of 10. And it was the first like, Knights in Shining Armour film that ever spoke to me. I wasn't particularly interested in Errol Flynn uh, or any incarnation that they did in the 50s uh, in this genre. But John Borman's one was rather good. It was very aggressive. And no one spoke to uh, one another. They all shouted at one another. So it took some time before you realised that's why it was so intense. Um, It's quite camp. So it had this sort of weird juxtaposition of being camp, yet simultaneously aggressive. And, you know, they had a budget of $25 and no visual effects and lots of very shiny 19th century armour. And it made a real impression on me because it was, it was a voice. It was a creative voice. So I, it made an impression on me. And then somewhere in the attic of my mind, I relegated it until the point where I had enough creative ideas in my reservoir to bring it forward and make a film and then someone gave me money and Warner Brothers wanted to make it and yada 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 and then it was the challenge I suppose of trying to take a sojourn into this world the fantasy epic fantasy medievally Lord of the Ringsy kind of a world and it's completely out of my wheelhouse so I find the challenge provocative and exciting as well that's a it's a fascinating era like uh, or a genre you know that fascinating world of uh, the fantasy you know knights and swords and bows and arrows and that that realm for whatever reason has been like intoxicating to people for a long time yeah it's an archetype so you're interested in firemen you're interested in nurses um you're interested in 
the superheroes, obviously. I mean, ar- arguably Arthur was the first superhero because he's the guy that extracts the sword and his galloper can do all sorts of wondrous things. And this myth is 1,200 years old, 1,400 years old. And it's as relevant today as it was then. But because it's an archetype that somehow kids either dress up as firemen, policemen, soldiers or knights. So we it's almost like we relived it it's like an outfit that we wore 1200 years ago so you feel familiar in it Mm. it's just it's fascinating that that one genre that one sort of archetype is just locked into the psyche of people yeah it's 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 there isn't it the other thing about it which is quite fun is you can take these kind of mystical rides into metaphor so you can symbolize things with 300 foot elephants which you can't do in some version of a realistic world. So it becomes, you have broad poetic license to take liberties. Are you using CGI in this movie? A lot of it. Yeah, wow. What's that like? Um, Boring but creative. Um, It's three years to make this movie. I'm used to making movies that take three months to write. Three Three years? Three years. Wow. Three months to write from beginning to end. Something like Snatch was three months. Six weeks to shoot, two months to edit. So Snatch was three months to do the whole thing or to write it? The, to write it and to shoot it. The whole thing, from the beginning to the way Beginning it was to the end was six months. Oh, wow. And then three months, say, for editing. So you're wrapped and packed in nine months, ten months. So this is a, a totally different kind of commitment as yeah. far as your mind and... Yeah, if I really knew what I was getting into, I would have asked for double bubble on the salary. <laughs> because you thought I think this could be a year and a half. It's not. It's three years. Like when you play on a movie like this, a big epic movie, do you have uh, an actual schedule of when you think it's going to begin and when it's going to end? or do You do, but you know, we, the terrain of filmmaking has changed exponentially like everything, like with technology. So what was pertinent last year is not pertinent this year. So release dates are a real dog. So we had a release date, which was projected a couple of years from when you start the movie. So they go, right, here's a check, make the movie. You're coming out in, it was, we were supposed to come out exactly a year ago. But then what happens is if you're not a branded movie, you get elbowed off that date. You know, Star Wars or something will come along. And then you're not going to compete with Star Wars. So you've got to move because you can't compete. So you've got a very crowded market with lots of brands. Now, this isn't something that we used to ha- suffer because everyone was equal going into the equation. You give yourself the advantage of having a movie star or something, but that doesn't exist anymore. What exists now is the brand, is the big brother. So he comes muscling and bullies his way into a weekend. And that's why you can't really get new films breaking through because those, occup- those weekends are already occupied. So trying to break through is a real real struggle we had to wait a year for a date and the date that we're coming out on is one weekend after guardians now guardians will be a vast hit and it's very dangerous being within the parameters of a of a big movie that's a really interesting thing that only movies have to go through these days right i mean it's one of the rare things where people are getting out and going to see something that's been made together in a group 
you know, that you're, you're watching media. Like, it's not a live performance. It's something that's been created, and it's going to press play at 8 p.m. on Friday night, and everybody's going to go to see it, and you've got to get as many of those people together as you can. It's one of the rare things like that. Yeah, and it's becoming more polarized. So it means more now. So you're opening a weekend. Everything's about they know what you're going to make by Thursday evening. Right. Right. You're coming. You're supposed to be coming out on Friday and everyone knows what you're going to make by Sunday night on a Thursday evening. There's enough clever people out there tapping into clever little boxes and computer says da, 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 da. And they're seldom wrong. Now, that never used to be the case. You used to come out and the films would get discovered. You used to have a little platform. You start small, go big, that sort of nonsense. Now you've just got to come out ball swinging. And if you don't come out ball swinging, people get very upset and they think that this is a failure. It hasn't lived up to expectations. Even if it's a creative success, yeah. nobody likes it. It's Well, you know, there's a bit of that. You know, there's, there is an acceptance that if a movie's good, the movie's good, and movies find their own way, usually in the end anyway. But the, the financial aspect has become polarized. It's too significant uh, of a component in the equation because, you know, it's an art form, right? At the end of the day, it's entertainment and an art form. And somehow you want to unify, reconcile that. So because they're essentially different. Reconcile those, put it in a nice little package. So you put in a, a pill with a sweet wrapper around it, and then you've got both. And then you should be happy. You should have the substance, and you should have the flavor. Um, but the, now the focus is all on the flavor and not on the substance, and that's result-orientated. So your movie comes out, and they go, what do you make? Right. It's like, slow down, son. What's the movie like? The question, first of all, should be, what's the movie like, rather than what did it make? And it, it's just it's become too competitive and too comparative financially and i love a dollar bill and i like things that's successful but it has to be secondary to what's primary and primary is what's it like creatively well a film like not not to shit on it but fast and the furious all i heard about was how much money it made that's all you hear it's like the big story the big fast and the furious opening box office hundreds of millions of dollars all you see is like it's gonna make a billion dollars like, why do you give a fuck? Why does anybody who's watching that give a fuck? You're not going to get any of that money. Why is it so appealing that this movie has made a billion dollars? Because it's comparative and it's competitive. Yeah, and but it's why all... to people in the audience? Because it's voyeurist voyeuristic. Yeah. So you can – it's like spectator sport. Who's the winner? Right. You don't – do you really care about how they won? You just care about the fact that they did win. Or like a Floyd Mayweather, you want to find out how much money he made. He made $200 million that fight. Ooh. People get excited about it. It's an extra element. Yeah. There is a sort of um, vicarious life that people can have through sports stars, celebrities, and success. If they feel somehow related to, or they went on the opening weekend, or they are invested in, then if it's successful, then somehow, proliferally, I'm successful. Yeah, that gets weird, right? It does get weird, yeah. It's uh, the business of movies is a very very strange business because you're you're a creative business but you're also a business enterprise. I mean you're you're a financial business, and when it when it's a guy like you, like your movies have a certain flavor. You know, like you start off with Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Like that movie has a flavor to it, and then your other films, like people want to go to see that kind of flavor from your films. Do you feel like pressure in that regard? 
like to live up to those expectations or to conform to these ideas that people have of your movies? Yes and no. Yes and no. Okay, it depends what mood you catch me in. Right. Um, I like what I do, and I'm going to do it anyway. I just like it very much when people pay me to do it and give me the money to go and do it. So I don't mind the financial aspect of it. I don't mind films having to compete. I, I, what, I'm, what I'm after is a reconciliation. And as I say, the, the primary component should be on the quality of the work. That should be what's primary. But I don't begrudge films being successful. I like them to be successful. I like the competitive element. But sometimes when you're talking with executives, you realize, mate, your priorities are on the wrong thing here. In the end, it is a creative medium. And that is what has to be primary. Do they get in the way of a guy like you, though? Like no. I would imagine a guy like you, they give you a certain amount of leeway. They give you all the leeway. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And my experience with studios has been very positive. And they try to encourage your, hopefully what is your individual idiosyncrasies. They want you to put your imprint upon the work. And they've been nothing but encouraging in that sense. But, you know, people portray their agendas whilst, you know, you're in light conversation. Or they portray their priorities. So you want to trust a man because he's a man of substance and to a degree independence so he's not looking to me to find himself through me so you're not asking me to tell me you who you are and that's the ongoing battle of life right we're all asking other people to tell us who we are right and independence from that is a man that could be trusted i don't want anything from you and thereby i can be kind to you because i don't need to manipulate you you're no longer a crutch Right. So it's got to be very difficult when you're in business with someone like that, especially like an executive, some slick character in a, in a fine suit to find out exactly what his real motives really are. They're never in fine suits. Never? Never. How do they dress? In appalling suits. Really? Yeah. I mean, business <laughs> does never encourage fine suits. No the, pocket squares? Occasionally you find a t- token pocket square, but you can tell their <laughs> heart's not in it. <laughs> The wife stuck it in there because she saw someone on TV that had a mm. bit of razzle-dazzle about them. And they thought, oh, I quite fancy my old man wearing one of them. And they sort of stick it in. The old man's a bit embarrassed about it and tries to squeeze it out of the way. Suits are a thing. The death of the suit, it was the death of the suit, was the prosaic attitude toward, I'm going to work and I've got to wear a suit. Yeah. And I've got to put a tie on and I don't want to stick out. That's how I feel. But that's that's what's happened. We've been brainwashed to not dress like gentlemen. But I see a guy like you and I say, that's appealing. Like, look how you're dressed. And you're in a conservative suit. This is a nice suit. Like, I'm sure you could wear any suit you wanted. But you chose a suit that has a certain look to it. Yeah, I have spent some time asking around with this, Joe. But a bit like the same reason that we've spent time asking around with the old pocket square. It's, I remember thinking how much I found the suit repugnant and i became angry that the suit had been robbed from us (laughs) and so i had to create an alibi a way in to understand why it is that i'd like a suit this was the magic of ralph loren the magic of ralph loren nice jewish boy from new york called lipschitz created a waspy empire there's a wonderful expression that you know think yiddish dress british and Ralph Lauren created this great empire and resold the waspy world back to the waspy world. Oh, you Actually, not to the waspy world, because 
in England, there was a sort of resentment about Savile Row traditional tailoring because it had been robbed from them. The offices had come along, the number crunchers had come along, and there was no creativity in the suit. A suit needs to be creative. The person that puts it on can't be putting it on because he's told to put it on. He's got to want to put it on. So what Ralph did is he fashioned up this sort of quasi-New England world and sold. He he took on a trope. He took on a cliché. And he refashioned that cliché to give it a new sense of life, a new sense of breadth. He put black people in the suits where traditionally it was just a white man's suit. He made it feel new. He gave it a take. So what he did is he tipped his hat the old world, but also tipped his hat the new world. And it allowed wasps to find their way back into the world with an eloquent narrative. It was clever. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting fascinated by the way your brain works because for you, it's important that the person want to wear the suit. And I have a feeling that that's, sort of, that's symbolic of how you feel about life itself. Like the person has to want to be doing what they're doing. They have to want to wear that suit. It has to be an authentic gesture. Um, did you ever read a book called Extreme Ownership? Written by a couple of Navy SEALs. Uh, that's Jocko Willink, right? No. No, that's... Uh, I think it is. Is it? Is yep. it Jocko's book? Yeah. Yep, it yeah, is. I've had Jocko on the show a bunch of times. Important book. Well, I've had him on once before. What am I talking about a bunch of times? Right. I've had him once, but... But it's an important book. Yes. Right? Now, there's lots of books that I've picked up on this theme, but they were very eloquent about it. If you don't own something, you're not the boss. You have to take full responsibility for everything that you do. Why be subservient? You must be the master of your own kingdom. I feel you. Makes a lot of sense. You've got to own that. You can't just walk into things with your eyes half open. You've got to walk into things with your eyes fully open. You've got to know what you're getting into. You have to take possession of your life. Is this a thought process that you have to constantly reaffirm? Or yes. Is this cemented exa- it's in your exactly head? that. It's exactly that. You drift on this point. Right. And it is whatever form of meditation or mantra that you decide to espouse, there needs to be some period in your day where you remember that there's a world out there trying to tell you who you are, and there's a world in here that's trying to tell you who you are. Now, where do you want to put your eggs? Because the world outside is very noisy and very tempting. And as all the razzmatazz, as all the tinsel and all the glitter, it's got all the toys. But that's because you don't think you're enough in the first place. Ah. If you don't think you're enough in the first place, the whole idea of the world to sell you stuff is, first of all, they have to make you feel bad about yourself, less than in some way. And I don't resent this system, by the way. It is the system. But what's the expression about don't hate? Don't hate the, the player. player. Hate the game. Don't hate the game. Love the game because you're in it, mate. Mm. So own the game, accept the rules, and move on into the rules. So the world will try and tell you who you are, and you have to tell yourself who you are. And there's this ongoing battle. And somehow there needs to be a reconciliation between the two. But in the end, you've got to have all the eggs in your basket. There's also an ongoing internal battle, though, isn't there? There's the you that you want people to think you are, and there's the you who you are, and trying to figure out, like, how do I, how do I figure out who I am? Like, am, am, do, do I have a correct assumption of how the people are perceiving me and how I actually am objectively, or am I bullshitting the world 
with this suit and pocket square. Yeah, I would say it's exactly the scenario that we're talking about. There, there's essentially only two two worlds. There's the inner world of energy and there's the right. outer world of energy. There's, there's two identities. One's real, one's false. The external world is I'm asking you to tell me who I am. That's what we're all playing at. And as soon as you start playing that game, we run into all sorts of trouble. Call it the ego, call it whatever you want to call it. But that's the dynamic that we're in. And somehow we have to give ourselves enough confidence to reassure ourselves that we are enough. However, I enter the game because I've got to move on in the world. I've got to crack on in the world. And I know there's loads of temptations that can come along the way. So I will own the suit. I'm going to wear the suit, but I'm going to own the suit. Now, I don't mean by paying for it. I mean by owning it. It's now my suit. It's my idea to put on this suit. I have to personalize it in some way. I have to understand a narrative that allows me to own that suit. And thereby, I put on my suit of armor and I come out into the world. And guess what? I'm having a good time because I'm owning the suit. Now, this is a very rock-solid philosophy. Is this something you've ever written down? It's what the essence of narrative... I'm a storyteller. The essence of narrative is only about this dynamic. There is nothing else in a story other than this dynamic. So the struggle between other people's perceptions and your own wants and desires and who you truly are, your your significant real self. That's it. That's all there is. You tell me a story that didn't, that we engaged in that's famous that's not about this journey. I'll give you an example. The prodigal son. Parable, Christian. Seems religious, doesn't really make much sense. Do you know the story? Sure, but why don't you lay it out? So there's a father. He has two sons, an older son and a younger son. And he says to them, who wants to spend their inheritance? The younger son says, me, Dad, I'll go and spend it. And the younger son takes all the dough and he runs off and sniffs coke off stripper's tits for a number of years until he realises this is getting pretty boring and I'm in a lot of trouble. He ends up feeding, throwing food to pigs. That's his job. And he can't even eat the food that he gives to the pigs, at which point he says, Dad, will you take me back? Dad then goes to, they don't meet. This somehow happens, not through telephones, it just happens. At which point, Dad goes to the fatty calf, says, kill the fatty calf. Older son says, hold on, Dad, what's going on? I've stayed with you since the beginning. I've been loyal to you. And I hear the stories of my younger brother coming back, who's been sniffing coke off strippers' tits for the last God knows how many years, and you're prepared to kill the fatty calf. What's the SP, Dad? I want to know the story. He says, you're all right, son, don't worry about that. You take a little side, a little step to the side, you'll always be with me, you're a good boy. At which point he goes out to meet the prodigal son, the wasteful son. The wasteful son returns and he says, you were lost and now you're found. That's the end of the story. It's quite hard to make sense of that in a literal sense. You go, oh, dad was a bit unfair and you should have been kind to the older son because he never ran off and did anything. But the essence of the story is that you are the father you are enough your older son is your intellect he says oh don't do this don't do that he's trying to reconcile make sense of a prosaic and material world the younger son being the wild feral 
entity that he is, wants to go out in the world and find out what it's all about. So in his recklessness and sense of adventure, he finds that he can't escape himself. So he has to return to himself. And at which point, he has to accept who he is. At which point, the intellect is left out of the equation pretty much as the older brother because he can't understand the significance of the journey of the wasteful brother. In the end, you have to leave yourself to understand the value of yourself. You have to lose stuff before you realise that all the stuff that you're losing is ephemeral and transitory. It's not yours. You're enough. You're always enough. But you've got to somehow prostitute yourself before you realise your own value. That is the essence of all stories. That's deep, Guy Ritchie. Is that something you, you think about all the time? Or is this, I mean, is this like a cemented philosophy? Lip, so, King Arthur, the story okay. you just made. A man is a king, has a son. The son, um, the father is, runs into a bit of aggro. The son jumps into uh, a little uh, boat, a little skillet. And he's uh, not skillet. That's what you cook your chops on, isn't it? Yeah. Um, skiff, a little skiff. The skiff uh, takes off down the river. He gets found by prostitutes. He's brought up in a brothel. He understands the ways of the street. He becomes a king on the street. He works his way out the different ladders. And then he pulls a sword from a stone at a certain point in his life, a certain point of evolution. And then from there, he goes on to be the king. There's a bit of a t tussle all along the way, lots of wrestling matches. In the end, he fights down his demons and he becomes the king. So what's the significance of this narrative? That every man in himself is aristocratic that he is his own king. He takes a sojourn into the material world, has to climb up all the different runs on the ladder, and ultimately has to return to himself. The significance of the extraction from the sword from the stone is the stone is the material world. The material world, which seems all solid because it controls you whilst you're projecting your sense of identity upon it, the extraction of the stone is taking back your own authority, your own divinity your own authority your own identity whatever it is that you've got to call it your own power you're no longer looking for a sense of self outside of yourself and then you have to face the demons that you've created in your history by facing them and fighting them and owning them you put them in the face of who you are and that's a wrestling match you'd have to take away all these crutches and that's all that we struggle from in life is taking away our crutches Oh, please tell me who I am. Oh, please give me a bit more money so other people think I'm clever. Oh, and then I'll have a nice car and people think I'm clever. You've got to take away all these crutches and stand as the man that you are and you're liberated from your whole thing. So that is the story of King Arthur. But it's not just the story of King Arthur. It's the story of all narrative. Do you think that most people that are watching the film are going to get that, though? They're just going to get an entertaining story. They're just going to see a bunch of cool stuff, some drama play out. But this is fascinating that you're operating so many levels underneath it. Yeah, but I'm a storyteller. It's my right. business. So if I'm in the business of story, I might as well understand story. And do you need to understand all that? I'm not sure if you do. It depends where you are on the ladder. So you can just go along and have a nice bit of entertainment. Good guy, right. bad guy. Everything's literal. There's nothing wrong with literalism. It is what it is. It's the game. You can glean what you can glean when you're ready to glean what you're ready to glean. Are you a Joseph Campbell fan? I am a Joseph Campbell fan, yeah. Yeah, that I mean, that's a reoccurring theme in his work. This, the hero's journey. Yes, the hero's journey. This underlying sort of narrative that just really guides all all stories and all ancient tales, and that there's something inherently human about them, important about these stories, and that they resonate 
with our, our wants and needs and goals and, and even also maybe the structure that we really truly need in our own life. Yeah, I mean, all the stories from whatever period, I'm sympathetic to this particular, um, to Joseph Campbell's philosophy on this, but he's not the only one, right? Right. It, the weird thing about religion is religion has done to the spiritual significance of narrative what the businessman did to the suit. <laughs> he's literalized it. He right. didn't realize that putting on a suit is putting on a suit of armor. He's putting on something that's rather spectacular. You're just doing it for convention. You're doing it for others. You're not doing it for you. And in our literal mind, we look at a narrative and we see the narrative for what we believe it to be, the exterior aspect of the narrative. So we completely, we see the world upside down. We don't, we're not actually interested in the essence of the narrative because we're so busy pandering after the approval of others. So everything that we see, every narrative that we listen to, every film that you see, you're not really interested in its soul. You're interested in its body because that's what we correspond to. It's fascinating that you're comparing it to suits because it resonates. Like when you think of a guy showing up for work or getting ready for work and he doesn't want to go and he's putting on the suit and it's just dredging through it and putting it on and... Or you think about a guy who's crisply tucking in his collars and putting on his cufflinks and tightening up his tie and he feels empowered by the whole process of it. It's very, it's very appealing. Like if you see it in a film, too, it's very exciting. This is a man of purpose. Okay, they did it in Mean Streets. I don't know if you remember. Yes. Har- it was Harvey Keitel getting dressed to go out on a Friday, getting dressed to go out on a Friday night, and it affected a whole generation of people about the way they dress because he owned it. Yeah. Yeah. I never really thought about that until this conversation. It's not because I, I just, I don't really, wear, I wear suits occasionally, like very, very occasionally. But you've been robbed. I've been robbed. You've been robbed. There are so many mm. aspects of life. Food for a long time got robbed from us. And we've slowly managed to claw that back. It's true. Um, but clothes, really? You're a 45-year-old geezer and you're still dressing like an 18-year-old? <laughs> what cuss is all that about? Well, some people like to be comfortable, though. I get that, by the way. And they like that look. Comfortable. <laughs> Your suit's comfortable? It's comfortable. Yeah. yeah. You can get poured into this, completely deconstructed on the inside, made I by look- a chap called Brunello, knows what he's doing. So these are all handmade? Um, it's, it won't be handmade. Tailored? Uh, no, you, I bought this off the shelf and I had really? it, yeah, a couple of things tweaked. But it's as comfortable as a pair of pajamas. Really? Yeah. So again, you have to broker a deal. You can't put on things that are uncomfortable because guess what happens in the morning? You're looking through your suits. You go, oh, I like that one, but I'm going to wear it. I'm going to wear a comfortable one. Ah, so they all have to be comfortable. Well, otherwise you're not going to play the game, are you? I have a thing about ties, though. Go on. I can kill someone with a tie on, for sure. You can kill someone with a tie. 100%. If I get a hold of that tie, you're dead. Joe, this conversation needs to go on for longer than it's going to go on. (laughs) This is the thing about ties. You're wearing a rope around your neck. If someone just gets a deep grab joe what are you thinking uh, about twist i'm not gonna Terrible. have a fight with anyone i know i'm, wearing a I'm tie. sure you're not but it's i mean you would have to in a deep disagreement you'd have to m- wrestle that sucker loose and take it off to be safe <laughs> i'm not going to indulge this <laughs> you shouldn't you shouldn't it's my own personal problem i just feel like someone with a tie on all you have to do is grab that thing and that's a wrap 
Like if you went to a jujitsu match and you had a rope around your neck, you're a jujitsu practitioner, right? I am, yeah. So don't you? I'm sure you've been collar choked then. Yeah, yeah. I've been fighting for 20 years, Joe. Yeah, a bit more so than 20 years. This thing around your neck, like, mm, really? By the way, my game is I'm all about the gi. I mean, I, Are I you? Play, yeah, I played a lot of no gi, but I've come back to the gi, and the reason I've come back to the gi is I can. I'm quite tasty with the gi. So, quite tasty. <laughs> quite tasty with the gig. I can. There's a couple of moves that I'd like to show. You. It's a bit tricky on the, on your uh, with your t-shirt, but I'm all about strangling man with his gi, um, which somehow elegantly segues from the tie. I mean, I'm all about creating what I call the hangman's rope out of the bottom of your gi. Okay. And turning that into a thing. So you're one of those guys that pulls the bottom I'm of the gi and wraps up. I'm, I'm that guy. Uh. I'm out there and. I, w- I played this game for a long time, which is the wrapping around the wrist, mm-hmm. or you know the fold. At the, so you get that little dinosaur flippy right. thing there, so your arms out of action. But then I discovered something, Joe. If you slip that gi in through there, so what he's doing for people just listening, he's tucking it like towards his on the inside, the inside crook of his elbow. And once it comes in on the inside, you can't get that hand out again. That's it. Basically, the fight's over from there. The fight's over. From there, because you from then on you own that arm. Hmm. It's interesting. We should have a little roll around at the end of this, Joe. How long have you been training now? Twenty years. What about, about you? twenty years? Black belt from Henzo. Oh, that's legit, man. That's seriously legit. Do you think most people know that? Don't you've, know. you've managed to keep that on the DL a little bit. Mm, not so much. Not so much. No. Well, I think if you ask the average person in the street, is Guy Ritchie a black belt in jiu-jitsu? They go, no, is he? But does the average man in the street know what a black belt in jiu-jitsu is anyway? I think they do now more than ever. Well, it's, it's, yeah, probably more now. Well, that's why when I see a guy as experienced as you wearing a tie, I go, hmm. <laughs> Maybe you're just super confident <laughs> but, about no one being able to get to that tie. But Joe, I'm not. <laughs> what's going on? Well, I'm a ridiculous person. That's what's going on. I mean, you have your own ridiculous ideas about owning suits. I have my idea, ideas about ch- getting choked to death wearing a tie. Like I said, I'm not going to indulge it. <laughs> you're fishing. I'm not fishing. I'm, I'm honestly, I do. I really do have a, an issue with ties. Okay. But it looks wonderful on you. Thank you very much. I mean, for real, it's a very elegant appearance. The whole thing from the top to the bottom. When did you start training? Uh, under who? Where, like, where were you? Um, first of all, I did karate for 15 years. I did Shotokan karate, which I was obsessed with. Got a second down in that. And then ACL went twice on the right leg. And I watched Choke. Can you remember Choke? Sure. And I watched Choke, and that was a, it was a revelation because old man... What was his name? Julio? Elio. 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 Old man Elio was on the mat at 84 in that video. And I thought, well, I'm not getting any younger. And if I'm going to take up a martial art, I love fighting, so I'm very happy to talk about fighting for a long time, Joe. Um, I I fancied the idea that I'd be... Because if I stayed with karate, I realised I would not be on the mat at 84. So, and back then, there was no jiu-jitsu in London. There was judo. And they had what was called Nawaza, which is the ground game. And they're pretty tasty. We got some good judo players. Um, so I went from karate to judo, but I was only interested in the ground game. And then Roger Gracie came to live in the UK about 20 years ago. And Roger Gracie went on to become the world champion eight times. And I started taking lessons with him and his dad, Mauricio. Then I ended up in New York for... I think we lived. I lived in New York for a while with my ex-wife, 
and I went to Henzo's gym when it was above the methadone clinic. Mm. And I fell in love with Henzo and I fell in love with jiu-jitsu in a sort of serious way. And I became obsessed with it for a number of years. Uh, Henzo gave me all my belts. Um, I mean, I should have got black belt. Ten, well, I say I should have got a black belt. I was, I was, I became lazy to a degree. So I got a black belt when I should have got a black belt. And as you and I know, there's some tasty blue belts out there can have a lot of fun with me. Um, but I sort of drifted a bit. I came in and out, sustained a few injuries. But if I was training hard, I think you train hard. You get black belt in five years, can't you? You got to be obsessed. Yeah, but they're, five they're, years. There are kids and, that are. There are kids yeah, that are. You can. I mean, I was a brown belt for eight years. So you're talking to yeah, the wrong person. No, no, no. I'm the same as you. I was brown yeah. belt for eight years. I think it's uh, if you're a real fanatic, you could get it in five years. But it's super rare. Like BJ Penn got it in three. It's right. almost unheard of. There's a few people that have done that. Yeah, there's some guys in our gym in London in Roger's place that they're there five days a week, three hours a day. They mean it. And within six months, they're a proper pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once you become obsessed with the movements and you start studying the various positions and the possibilities, it becomes a part of your life, it becomes a part of your almost like your your operating system. And as you see these guys reinforce that operating system, you see their their game becoming more and more complex and to be able to chain attack after attack and being able to anticipate the defenses of those attacks and plan two and three steps ahead. And you see all this play out. It's an amazing. I, I really, really enjoy watching someone go from being a beginning student to being a killer. It's a fascinating process because you're literally watching someone develop their comprehension of a language of fighting, and that language of fighting is analogous to life. It it, it helps them in every single aspect of their life because it's one of the most difficult things that a person will do in their day. I mean, you walk into a jujitsu school, you you park your car. You live in this normal realm of normal people with you know, normal problems and bills and stresses and issues. But once you go into that thing, you put on that gi or no gi or whatever you're doing and you go into that class. Once you engage in these sparring sessions, these sparring sessions with skilled practitioners, you're doing one of the most difficult things any person within a hundred mile radius of you that's not fighting for their life is doing. And by doing that on a regular basis and constantly reinforcing this language, it enhances the, all your possibilities and your potential possibilities as a person. Very eloquent. Yeah, I mean, I, can't, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. One of the great things I found about jiu-jitsu is whenever I came to a city, we'd just tap into a computer where the next uh, gym was, and we'd roll down there. I usually, I'm usually with two or three people. Like Ivan out there, he's also a black belt. Um, I got a chap that uh, I was with called Bobby the Tits, who was an Olympic <laughs> judo player. Fucking, you should see the chest on this geezer. He is a beast. That's why he's Bobby the Tits. Bobby the Tits. <laughs> um, so a cross between Ivan the Terrible and Bobby the Tits, we used to hit these gyms, and uh, everyone, there's a complete substructure there. If you, mm -hmm. if you want to be looked after, they'll give you a gaff, hello, mate, how's it going? And there's the brotherhood. I suppose it's probably the same for people who go to church. I don't know. But there is a brotherhood that I found amongst fighters where everyone's like game and friendly, come around at the barbecue, do what, and everyone's, there's a, there's a whole substructure there that everyone will look after everyone else. And I've never in the 20 years of fighting in different gyms, have I lost my temper? Or have I had a reason to lose my temper? Right. Has anyone ever been a bully? You've had people a bit clumsy, got a bit carried away, 
but there's such a system of accountancy right that you can't get away with being a bully because there's always a bigger bully and you know you're going to get found out and i like that aspect of it everyone gets found out yeah especially over time right i mean if you're training consistently with really difficult training partners your character is going to be tested there's just no way there's around no, it. there's no way around it and sometimes i end up training quite a lot in at home right i've got five six mates to come around there it's not the same as going to a new gym with new players right um and you've got to get out there i know a few rich guys that have got trainers and they're not bad players you know the trainers are good and the fighters are good but because they don't get outside of their comfort zone and go to a feral gym yeah a gym on the street they're, they're, it's very hard for them to really evolve. Right. You've got to keep putting yourself in an uncomfortable spot, in uncomfortable gyms. And like, as you said, when you do that, though, you do see the kind of the same thing over and over again, the same type of human. You know, you just see them in London or you see them in New York or in Los Angeles. You see that same type of human. It's, it's, the, it's the great thing about a sport in general, but let's be specific because it's something that you and I can relate to, is there are no barriers in jiu-jitsu. No one's looking at you if you're right. rich, you're poor, you're black, you're white. It's completely irrelevant. You come to the mat, and if you get on with the geezer you're fighting, you get on with the geezer that you're fighting. Yeah. And there's a complete clarity of vision when you're fighting someone. It's just you're fighting them, and you rate them on their ability of how they fight. Yeah, and you carry that social hierarchy, like what, that, what, what's important. In that school is that it is like who is proficient, who is very good. That is that is that's the that's the currency. Yeah, the ultimate currency. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, I, I had a name when I used to train out here or in New York. That they, they used to call me Hollywood because I was like the only celebrity kind of person that used to come in and say, "Oh, right, Hollywood, you fancy a little roll around this that." And the other. <laughs> but that you know, and a couple of people initially went, "Oh, you're that geezer," and you know, yeah, that lasted all of thirty seconds. Right. You know? Yeah, and then everything gets wiped. And it's you have no currency on the mat other right. than your currency on the mat. Right. And there's a wonderful clarity in that. Yeah, for a guy like you or any t- any big-time celebrity, that's probably one of the only few places where you really, truly experience that. Like, there is no bullshit in that role. Like, when someone's going after you and you're going after them, it's 100%. It is what it is. There's there's all the, the, the bullshit veil of society has been removed. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll muddy the water a bit now. So, harking back to uh, what we were talking about previously, I'm aware that you become less adventurous as your ego grows in jiu-jitsu, right? Particularly if the guy that doesn't tap. If you're the guy that doesn't tap, you don't ever want to be the guy that doesn't tap. And you hunker up and you become a boring fighter. Mm. And it's an issue. You know those guys, and there's a couple of guys that I can think of one in particular, that if you get the better of him, and by and large, he's a better fighter than me. But all of a sudden, he realizes he's in trouble. Just before I'm about to tap him, he goes, oh, stop there. One sec, guy. If you just moved a little bit to the oh, right. Oh, he gives the instruction. Those it, guys are the it, worst. <laughs> that's their alibi to get out them losing face. Ooh. So what face is it they're losing? It's yeah. the crutch that they actually think that being a jiu-jitsu player has an identity in itself and it doesn't mm. you cannot use it as a crutch and it's the essence of all martial arts martial arts was about find yourself within that framework and be honest about it and you meet the opponent and as your man connor will tell you you're finding it's about you fighting you in the ring what you're 
other part of the mind, the other part of the mind that we were talking about, wants to say is about your reputation in the gym and what people think of you. So, you're, again, you're trying to find an identity from outside of yourself by not tapping. And you know that feeling. And, by yeah. the way, I suffer it myself because I don't like to tap either. But it, it makes my game – it inhibits my game and it stops me being creative. Yeah, Marcelo Garcia has always been very adamant about that, that you have to open up your game in the gym, and it's the only way to really truly progress. And don't worry about being tapped, and don't have that ego. And there's a great video of him and Damian Maya rolling, and they're rolling, they have like, they're putting almost no like kinetic strength, no explosive energy, nothing, no, nothing athletic. They're just going through the movements and exchanging positions, and they're tapping each other left and right and left and right with no ego. It's really interesting to watch mm, because you see like Marcelo catch Damien and they roll to a position and Damien taps and then they go through another position and Marcelo does it and it's just, it's really fascinating because what they're doing, they're, they're truly flowing. There's no like real, oh here we go right there, you can see them do it. But like when these guys do it, like as they're doing it, they're obviously using strength and they're countering with skill but everything is very smooth and controlled and you're looking at two of the very best black belts to ever do it. You're looking at Damian Maya, who right now is arguably the top contender in the UFC's welterweight division. He's going to be fighting Jorge Masvidal next weekend, actually, which is a really in intense fight because uh, Masvidal is a killer. And then Marcelo Garcia, who's probably one of the all-time great strangulation experts that's ever walked the face of the planet. I mean, he's really revolutionized a lot of aspects of the guillotine, the rear naked choke, and... I was in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, in 2003 when he burst onto the scene, when uh, he choked out Shaolin. And uh, to see these two guys rolling together is really, really interesting because this is really kind of how you have to do it. You just do it. You know, there's, there's no one is saying, I can't tap, I can't, you know, I can't put myself in a bad position. They're, they're exchanging positions, like right there, when Damien gets underhooks and he goes for the deep half. Marcelo's just rolling with it. They're just flowing. Yeah, but you need two to tango, don't yep. you? You can't have one with an ego and, and who's not going to play the game and bunkers down and screws himself down. It makes the whole thing very hard to do. It's got to be, you both got to be complicit. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting watching like two really, really high-level guys like this roll. Or like, you know, Hodger Gracie and uh, Braulio Estima or something like that. England's got a great scene. Yeah, it does. There's so much top-level jiu-jitsu over in England right now. Yeah, it's got some good players, yeah. It used to be a time just a couple of decades ago where if you wanted to train, it was very difficult to find really proficient instruction and, and great well, training impossible. partners. 20 years ago, yeah. it was impossible. I remember because I was, I was first into it when we made Snatch, which is 18 years ago, and that's when Hodger first came to town, and before then it was just judo, just Nawaza. Yeah, well, I mean, you can certainly get something out of that. But um, it seems like the the level of uh, – I mean, there's some people that have just a one rock-solid attack, like Ronda Rousey had that rock-solid attack with the arm bar, and she comes from that judo background. That's a naughty arm bar. Oh, it's nasty. Her arm bar to this day, I believe, is one of the best arm bars I've ever seen in MMA. Not just because uh, she was successful with it, but when you watch her transitions, you watch how she's able to adjust and change. Like the Kat Zingano fight is a perfect example of that. Kat Zingano just charges at her like a fucking bat out of hell. And they have this mad scramble. And Ronda realizes a position that she's, she doesn't even utilize. But she's, she understands arm bars so well. She knows, well, I could just throw my hip over this way and kick back here and I'll catch that arm bar. This is just overall understanding of the position is so high level. Yeah. 
when someone has a move like that, I used to fight a bit with uh, Hickson. And Hickson used to do that thing where he ties his hands behind his back and you've got to try and do something to him. Right. And you can't do anything to him. The the level of sophistication when it's like that, he's so he was so technical, Hickson, that it was what what I understand about jujitsu is really rather primitive. Um but I'm aware I'm primitive. I'm aware that my understanding of jujitsu is really quite primitive. And then when you see something like that armbar yeah. come sneaking out of nowhere, oh, it's a, it's a magnificent thing to behold, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The, when, and what you're saying is kind of interesting because someone listen to this and go, how is a black belt primitive? Like, you're not primitive. You're an expert. But I understand totally because I'm also primitive. I know. I know what I know. Like, I understand, like, there's what what Hickson's language is, is a series of words that you've never heard before, spoken perfectly in the right order, with no pauses or ums or no filler, and the way he flows with it. It's just, he's got a level of proficiency that very few, other than Marcelo and Damian Maya, can really appreciate the, 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 the true beauty of it all. Because they just don't like I, I won't I won't see things coming. It would be they're, they're too complex. It's, be, co- it's completely different language. Yeah, yeah. But you know enough. Um, I read a good line somewhere the other day that someone had enough brains to know that they didn't have any brains. <laughs> um, so you know enough to know that you're in treacherous and deep waters here. Yeah. Otherwise, your average geezer starts. Uh, Starts rolling around with one of these good guys. Says, oh, you know, he's all right. But, oh, there's kids, Joe or Guy. They'll be the same. They've got the same color belt on it. Let's have a go with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just get manhandled. Now, um, you said you had your knee fixed. You, uh, you blew, what did you blow out, ACL? ACL, I've done it twice, yeah. Did you get um, cadaver replacement? or No, hamstring and then patella. Ooh. Hamstring first time, patella second time. And the hamstring blew out, right? Yeah. Those things blow out a lot. Uh, yeah, eventually it gave in. I had the first one done when I was about 21. Okay. And the second one done when I was about 31. And now it's held together, but the old knee's a bit knackered. Do you know about stem cell? Yeah. How are you feeling about stem Great. cell? Great. I, oh, yeah. I was that close to shoulder surgery, and I had some placental stem cells shot into my shoulder, and it's amazing. And where did you have that done? Vegas. Really? Yeah. There's a guy named Dr. Roddy McGee who's at the, the tip of the spear when it comes to the technology that's involved today. What was the issue with the shoulder? A bunch of tears. Just stuff, just years and years of abuse. Yeah, my cartilage has gone on that shoulder. Now my cartilage has gone on the knee, and mm. I didn't really know anything about stem cell about two weeks ago. And now that's all I'm hearing about. Oh well, I have a podcast I'll, I'll send you, and it was with me and Dr. Rod McGee that we did uh, about a month ago. Fabulous, he's amazing, and again, he's he's well up to date with the latest technology, and he's also very conservative in his approach to it, but. What he's saying is that they are able to regenerate cartilage and meniscus tissue. And this is the first time anything has ever come along that actually regenerates these tissue. They've been able to trim it and do things to it to mitigate pain. But now they can literally regenerate tissue. They're even injecting it into people's discs now, the discs in their spine. And they're showing that they can regrow disc tissue. Yeah, but you, you've just nailed my three issues. Disc issue... And cartilage. Yeah. That's all my issue is. Of course. Meniscus and cartilage and disc. And what do you got going on with your back? Lower Everybody's back, got something. Yeah it's, the, yeah, it's the it's the traditional issue with those three C whatever mm-hmm. they're called at the bottom of the back. I'm gonna show you something else that you're gonna need and you're gonna get after we have this conversation. I have a machine out back called the reverse hyper. 
and it was created by this mad genius named Louis Simmons. And what the reverse hyper is, is a machine that decompresses your back and also strengthens it at the same time. It decompresses it on the downswing and then on the upswing. It, it strengthens all those muscles around it, but it literally pulls the back apart and the compressed discs, which is bad posture, load, uh, degeneration. And you can look up at the screen. This is this guy's fucking crazy. He's one of the craziest people I've ever interviewed. He was hilarious, but he's a old time power lifter who's been doing it forever. I mean, he's got fake shoulders, fake knees. Everything's blown out. He has no biceps. His biceps are completely severed off of his arm. He, uh, what was he saying? Like he, he was, he had to, his friends were making a max out bench like five days after his shoulder replacement. He's a fucking maniac, but they were trying to fuse his discs. And so he came up with this machine and you see as it swings down, when she's swinging down, it's pulling her back apart. Like go to the, the, here you go. When it's going down, it's pulling the back, an active decompression. And as she's swinging up, she's strengthening all those muscles in the spine in a real weird way where you really can't get at them and was so it this is the issue because you can do the super my, superficially i'm strong there mm-hmm. but the core underneath the superficial muscles yeah and when i had the mri you could see all the fat in the surrounding mus uh, muscle around the discs and you could see the fat in it and mm-hmm. then as soon as you hit the superficial you went oh that's fine there's nothing wrong with the superficial so it's a i, I need a way like this yeah um just buy one of those man where you have to beast through your superficial muscles to get to your core muscles well it's just it it forces that area of the body to work like you're sustaining a load and you can you lift it up and you hold it in that position and then as you let it go it's it's decompressing and in the decompress cycle you you you're feeling your muscles relax and you can actually feel it pulling like you feel in the lower back in a weird way. You feel it kind of pulling and separating, and then a couple of seconds later, you're strengthening it again. And then you're pulling and separating, and you're strengthening it again. And then I have another thing out back that I, um, I bend over from the waist on, and it allows my lower back to just completely relax. And my upper body pulls down on my lower body, and it separates and decompresses the lower spine. I mean, it's been tremendous, a huge, huge asset. But there's a bunch of things they can do now. Have you heard of Regenikine? Do you know what that is? No. Regenikine is something that was developed in Germany that a lot of professional athletes like Kobe Bryant, Peyton Manning, they went over there. And it's a a blood-spinning procedure similar to platelet-rich plasma. But they take the blood and as they're, they're spinning it, they heat it up. And when they heat it up... The blood has a reaction to the extreme heat, like it, like it thinks you have a fever, so it produces this very intense anti-inflammatory response. Obviously, if you're a scientist or a doctor, I'm butchering this. But, and they take this yellow serum, which is this in, anti-inflammatory response, and they can inject it into all these areas that you have massive inflammation, like bulging discs. And it has an incredible effect. It had an incredible effect for Peyton Manning, allowed him to get back to football again. I had a bulging disc that was making my hands go numb totally went away through decompression and through this kind of stuff. Yeah, I heard this added 10 years to Kobe's career. Am I yeah, right in thinking yeah, that? Yeah, that's what he th- thinks. Yeah. Do you know, I didn't, up until I'm 48, how old are you, Joe? 49. Okay. Almost 50. Oh. So I didn't think about any of these things until this year. Mm. So I accepted an ACL as a bit of a nuisance. I accept I got a bit of a creaky back. But in the last month, I went to, my, something happened to my knee. And I went to uh, the doctor, a little uh, x-ray, and he went, well, I could operate for the 
tenth time I've had an operation on that knee. But you're better off now waiting. Waiting for what? Till I give you a new one. (laughs) Fucking hell. So he's talking about a replacement? So he's talking about a replacement. Now, he's saying to just hold on, right? So he's saying in 15 years from now or whatever it is. But it all changed. And then a month after, I went and had the shoulder um, x-rayed. And he looked at it and he went, well, I could operate that. And I knew where we were going here. Mm. You're better off waiting until I give you a new one. I'm now that geezer where they're not talking about fixing. They're talking about giving me new ones. Right. Now, I hadn't. So, you know, Ivan out there knows exactly what you're talking about. To me, there really wasn't a vessel to receive this information. Now, in the last month, I am ready to receive this information. Uh. So in the next three months, I will know of what you talk about. I immediately am going to connect you with Dr. Roddy McGee. As soon as we get off the phone or off the podcast here, I'm going to connect you with him. And he'll he'll be able to keep you abreast of all the stuff. And it changes constantly. Like when I first went, I first got a shot in July of last year. And I was that close to surgery. I was trying to figure, okay, I was planning my time. I was saying, okay, if I get the surgery... I essentially can't use this arm for at least a few weeks, and it's going to be pretty weak for at least three months. And I was really accepting that. And he said, well, let's just give this a shot. And within a couple of weeks of getting the shot, I was like, God damn, this thing feels better than it's ever felt before. And so through a series of exercises, like a lot of uh, rotator cuff strengthening exercises and um, uh, bottoms up kettlebells, like where you, you have to stabilize the yeah, kettlebell. Yeah, I like those ones. Those, I like are, those, ones. those are fantastic yeah, yeah, yeah. for stabilization muscles. And then it also made me realize that if you're going to do something along the lines of jujitsu, something that's very physically demanding, you have to strengthen your machine. Like you can't, you can't just keep going to jujitsu, which is what I was doing for years. Yeah, me too. That was my exercise. I don't think that's adequate. I think you have to strengthen the machine. And I think yoga is also a re- really big impart- important part of strengthening that machine because it's lengthening, it's decompressing the spine, and it's making you strong in these static positions, which is very similar to the load that's going to be pushed on those joints and on your back when you're doing jujitsu, I tried yoga for a year. I tried every day because usually I can get into anything at some point or another. I just got to keep throwing enough hours at it. The one thing I couldn't get into, couldn't do it. Maybe my approach was wrong. I was doing a stung with my ex-wife, and it was incredibly painful, incredibly challenging. But what I like about a fight is the competitive element of it. Yes, I can. There's my enemy. I can have a roll around with my enemy. There's a tap. There's a winner. There's a loser. And for some reason, that keeps me motivated. The idea, I mean, in, in essence, I imagine it's the what I was talking about in the end. It's, it's self against self yes. with yoga. I just haven't made it that far to access um, that struggle and enjoy it. I feel like I'm always running on fumes with yoga. Yeah, well, you're going to run on fumes. But it's it's building a house one layer of paint at a time. I mean, it's it's not a... It's not an easy thing to do. And I think that competitive element that you're talking about is an internal struggle. And that internal struggle is you and your breath. Keeping your breath in calm and check and focusing entirely on your breath while managing the positions. And then slowly but surely developing more proficiency in those positions, more range of motion, more dexterity, keep going over and over again. And then one day you get to a point, for me it was like, 
maybe an, a year and a half into doing it pretty regularly where I'm like, okay, now I can finally hold this position for 30 seconds. Whereas before, I'd, I'd literally count to 10 and just try to get to 10, and then I'd fall down. And then I'd get back up and try again, try to get to 10, try to get to 10. My feet would buckle, my knee wouldn't be locked out, and then I'd try again. But once you develop a certain amount of proficiency, then you can concentrate entirely on the breath. And that's where the real struggle is. And then keeping the mind on track, not thinking about other bullshit, not thinking about the just uh, just the struggle of life and all the different variables that you have to deal with on a daily basis, thinking only of the breath, the posture and the breath, very difficult to keep on track. So that in therein, that's the competitive struggle. It's in your own mind. You see a consistency with the theme though. The theme is this, that that's all there is. It's the outside world and the noise and what comes with that. And there's the internal self, but everything is, everything is subject to these rules. Yeah. And yoga, in this sense, is no different. Jiu-jitsu is no different. Narrative is no different. It's being aware of what the dynamic is. It's being aware of what's actually going on that I think is fundamental. Yes, yes. And pattern recognition. Recognizing that it's the same for yoga is for the essence of a narrative. Absolutely, yeah. And those things become a vehicle for developing your human potential, whether it's yoga or whether it's jiu-jitsu. And I think pattern recognition, it's, they, they take place in both things. In yoga, you go, okay, I've been here before. I know where this is. I know I know what to do. And you go right back into that thing of concentrating on controlling the breath. These big, long, deep breaths and these big, long exhales. And then uh, the, the focus is entirely on the breath. And those patterns, they come up in jiu-jitsu as well. I mean, that, that ability to maintain breath. I mean, I'm sure you've recognized that in a, a person who just starts. Like one of the things you see about someone who's just starting, even if they're athletic, they don't know what they're doing. They start hyperventilating. They don't know what to do. They start breathing weird. And they, the breath is like the first thing that you lose control over. And Hickson from the movie Choke, I mean, that was the big thing that separated Hickson from all the other yeah. jiu-jitsu players yeah. is his yoga. Yeah, his yoga. He made yoga sexy. Yeah, yeah, he did. Well, he was the first guy to make it appealing at all to martial artists. I mean, that was what your wife did. That's what your mom does. It's what the housewives do. It's not something that a man does, especially not the top jujitsu killer ever. It was a seminal. It was a seminal documentary that. Yeah. Wasn't it? it changed a lot of people's lives, and it sort of turned Hickson into a rock star. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had him in here. He's a he's an amazing guy to talk to. I've had him. I've talked to him several times, but having him in here and sitting down with him and talking to him about jujitsu, it's like, it's like the, it's like sitting down with Michelangelo and talking about art. I mean, you're talking about there's there's masters and then there's the master of the masters. And if you talk to any jujitsu master, they all just go Hickson is the number one. Like there's no dispute, which is amazing. There's there's very few like there's soccer players that are just elite and there's basketball players that are elite. But when it comes to like who's the best in jujitsu, there was always this one guy. And while he was competitive and especially while he was young, it was always Hickson which is, to me, amazing that he was able to maintain. And I think one of the things about him was his physicality and his mind. And I think those two things, in many ways, were enhanced by yoga. I think he's got some disc issues now, though, doesn't he? He has quite a few. He has quite a few. Yeah, I think he has eight bulging discs, which is horrific. Maybe you should send him to your man. Oh, I'm going to, 100%. I mean, I've talked to Hickson about a bunch of things. Hickson, though, is a bit reluctant for certain kinds of treatment. You know, I mean, he's uh, he's 
just gonna eat mangoes and fucking meditate and shit. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what he's uh, what he's uh, what he's tried or what he's willing to try. But I would love to see him. I mean, I would love to see him rolling again. I mean, that would be amazing if they could regenerate disc tissue to the point where he would be healthy. I mean, that's the fear. Yeah. Right? The fear for the first time for me is that I've never felt any version of age on the mat. But when people are starting to tell me, oh, we're not going to fix it. We're going to wait until we give you a new one. I'm going, oh, no, I'm not the sound of this, mate. And when they're saying that about your knee, what is the issue? Is it a meniscus issue? Um, it is a meniscus issue, but I've lost 75% of the meniscus, of the cartilage. Whoa. I get confused between the difference cartilage and meniscus. What is the difference? Cartilage is what covers the outside of the bone. Meniscus is the padding, essentially, that's in between the two bones that keeps them from touching each other. Right. Okay. So they have b- So both. it goes bone, meniscus. No, bone, co- cartilage. Bone, cartilage, meniscus. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the meniscus, you can cut some of it out. But when you did, and I've had that done, um, my left knee, they, they did a, you know, uh, they go in arthroscopically and they trim yeah. some of the torn meniscus. Yeah. It's, it's, it works, but it, it's less stable. There's less tissue in there. It's more subject to inflammation and swelling. It doesn't handle the load as well. But I got stem cells shot into there, and I've never had a problem since. It's amazing. I had a problem with it for, I mean, I tore it for the first time uh, more than 20 years ago. And had an operation, I think, in 95, somewhere around there. And then I had another operation on it in 2001, 2002. And it was, it's always been an issue since then. It's just one of those things that you get sore, I just deal with it. Whether it's kickboxing or whether it's lifting weights or whether it's jujitsu, it gets sore. I just deal with it. I, you know, take glucosamine and chondroitin and a lot of fish oil and anti-inflammatories and changing my diet helped quite a bit. But there was always that thing until they shot the stem cells in there. And then literally within a few months, it's non-existent. Like, I don't think I have this knee that acts up anymore. Now I have a knee that never acts up. It just doesn't bother me anymore. This is very exciting stuff. It's very exciting stuff. And tell me, how thin um, on the wedge are we in terms of this being new? Well, they've been doing it and experimenting with it for a couple of decades, apparently, according to Dr. McGee. But the understanding of the potentials and the possibilities and then the practical application has, over the last 10 years has really come to the forefront. It's really become something very, very viable. It's not just theoretical anymore. Now they're actually seeing people regenerating tissue. They're seeing people where you have a tear in like your shoulder or something like that, and they're going, well, you're probably going to have to get surgery. No, then they shoot it in there, and then next thing you know it, a couple months later, I mean, I still got some floating tissue that, like, pops and crunches and stuff in my shoulder, but when it comes to, like, the actual strength in my shoulder, I don't worry about it at all. Like, it doesn't bother me. I mean, there's there's occasionally some light soreness, but as far as, like, the functional strength of the shoulder, it's like 100%. It's crazy. So is this the thin end of the wage, then? So is this going to... Is this going to turn into one of those exponential? Yes, uh, it is. Oh, for sure, for sure. They're already generating. They they built this woman. This is very exciting. It's stuff, very Jack. exciting. It's as exciting as it gets. Yeah, they're regenerating tissue. They're re- regenerating body parts. They built this woman a bladder. She had a. They took skin cells, stem cells from her skin, and they with a in a petri dish. They started this off and then built her a. She had bladder cancer, and they built her a bladder, and then put it in her body, and it's functional. It's amazing. I mean, this is all state of the art now, 
and when we're looking at like 10, 20, 30 years from now, I mean, you're looking at potentially regenerating all sorts of things, regenerating bone for people who have bone cancer, regenerating lungs and liver and spleen and heart. I mean, they're going to be able to make body parts. They've created an artificial heart that beats like with stem cells. They've actually constructed a human heart. This is a subject you know something about. I'm oh, fascinated by it. Fascinated by it. Because what, what they're able to do now is just, a, you know, you're just looking into the future. You get a window into this. And it seems like it's exponentially exploding. I mean, all over the world, there's people experimenting with this stuff and trying to figure out new ways to improve things. Which is the fact I'm having the conversation. And this isn't the first conversation I've had in the last month about this. Yeah. It's part of the zeitgeist, no? Oh, it is now. People are understanding it, and people know people that have had issues with it. Um, you can't get it in America, but in in Mexico, I know people that go over there and get it done intravenously. <laughs> and uh, you know Boss Rutten. You know Boss Rutten. Yeah. Boss Rutten, the way he describes, you know, Boss is this big character. He's like, and it was like I had energy coming off my fingertips. Like, <laughs> ah! <laughs> Boss has had some pretty significant problems. He's got fused discs in his neck, and he had major atrophy in his arm. Because his disc was, you know, compressed and they it was pushing on the nerves, and so the nerves weren't getting they were, it wasn't they weren't firing correctly. So his right arm he calls baby arm because his right arm is kind of shrunk, and so he's experimented with a lot of these things. He's kind of been ahead of the curve with this stuff. You should get Jason Statham in here. I would love to. You look like you fell out the same trees. <laughs> <laughs> I know we do, right? Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, He's got a couple of tweaks here and there. I met him. He's a nice guy. Oh, Was he fabulous. had a bunch of stuff going on with his body too? I'm sure. He's a martial artist. By the way, he's in better condition now. He used to be an Olympic diver. Uh, he used to dive for uh, England, you know, one of those mm-hmm. divers. Right. Um, fabulous athlete. And he takes care of himself. I believe he, it. He's good, Nick. But, you know, he's got tweaks got the old knee that just never quite goes away mm-hmm. that little thing and he does as much and by the way get him on diet and he's off to the races you can't shut him up mm. he's got to you know leave him there for three hours come back go and have a couple of beers we're <laughs> <laughs> still banging on about it it's something that he cares profoundly about i can tell you now if he was sitting here now there'll be a battle about you you couldn't who was gonna say what to who because you talk over one another <laughs> um you should get him in here though he'd he, he relate to a bit of this joe no i'm sure do you watch your diet are you a healthy eater not as healthy as i'd like to be i, bl- I go up and down i play i oscillate with 30 pounds of extra nonsense 30. most of the time yeah i'm now I'm, I'm weighing 190 now i should weigh I'm about 192 actually today and i should be creeping around a, a good fight and weigh about 178 so what is it? Is it a booze thing? It's or a, booze thing. a booze thing. It's not the booze. The booze isn't the issue in, in terms of the calories itself. The booze is the window to the calories itself. The pizza. And the- uh, pizza, I'm not a pizza man, but I do love a pub. A pub. I do love a pub, and I like a pack of crisps. You don't really have a pack of crisps. You call them chips over here. Yeah. It's not quite the same thing. They're not? They're not. Well, no. An English, uh, an English crisp is a heavyweight chip. Um, and they work particularly well in pubs. So it's two pints of Guinness and a couple of packs of crisps, and you've belted in a thousand calories as complete nonsense in all of about twenty-two minutes. Right. Um, the salt too is very appealing while you're drinking a cold yeah, beer. Yeah, the whole thing just works. Enhances each other. But it doesn't take long before there's a heavy price tag that comes with that. I train a lot. I reckon I train 
weights three times a week and fighting but another three times a week i love training but i like a pub <laughs> and it's trying to somehow reconcile that and every now and then i behave myself i stay out the pub stay off the booze for three months and i can and i get myself down to 178 however it's been five six years since i've been there now i just dropped eight pounds the other day strictly i was strict with myself off the booze because i'm off the booze i don't look at food in the same way the thing the whole purpose of booze is to relax the trouble is is what also relaxes is the rules right right now when you're you're dealing with all these injuries how are you able to train through all the stuff if you've got a shoulder that they're thinking one day might need to be replaced and knees that might need to be yeah, replaced. just crack on crack on yeah. And I found that, and I'm sure you've had the same, through jujitsu, whenever I get an injury, I find if you start mincing around with it and paying too much attention to it, it can dog on for longer. Nine out of ten of my injuries I just train through. And there's almost a bluffing game that you have with the injury. Who's in charge here, me or the injury? And mm. once the injury knows that you mean it, it tends to moonwalk out the door. But there are more fundamental ones, like the shoulder and the knee. The necks. And, and uh, actually, well, I say that, actually. The neck's been giving me a bit of aggro recently. Um, so there are a few things that you need to take quite seriously. Now, I can see you're onto this, Joe. I can see you're focused on this. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot about this stuff. Yeah. But you're invested. Yes. Right? And you need to be invested if you mean it. Yeah. It's, it's ownership again. Your investment is ownership. Well, my good friend Eddie Bravo just had his disc replaced. He had it replaced with a titanium articulating lower back disc. So he had some pretty significant disc decompression or uh, compression issues uh, in deterioration. And it got to the point where his lower back was just constantly inflamed. You know, Eddie's world-class black belt. Yeah. He just couldn't, couldn't keep going anymore. Why didn't you send him to your man? Well, it was before they were actually shooting it into the disc. He had it done about a year ago. Right. About a year ago? About eight, nine months ago? Something like that? So this they does weren't... make me wonder whether you just hang on. Yeah. With, I would say with stem cells, with a lot of things hang on. With some things you can hang on, like uh, ACL tears. Once the tear, once the, the ligament is removed, you, there's nothing you can do. You have to have it's it a, replaced. It's a terrible thing. Yeah. The ACL, and it's such a common injury. But you know what's interesting is once you get it replaced, like for me, I had a patella tendon graft on the left knee and then a cadaver graft on the right knee. Oh, right. And you, they don't, yeah. all, you've had all sorts of things done there. Yeah, I've done it all. Right. And, and, but neither one of them bother me at all anymore. And they're stronger. Like the, the, when they do a cadaver graft, they use the Achilles tendon, which is 150 plus percent stronger than your original ACL. So it actually makes it a stronger joint. Right. Mine's not. Yeah, well, the patella tendon graft is still stronger. The, when they use a patella tendon graft, it is still strong. And your patella tendon is a very huge tendon. And you can, like, you can operate with a, a third of it missing, which is essentially what they cut out when they... I've no, if My right leg, which has had the two ACLs, I've noticed it's atrophied and there's very little I can do mm. to beef up that quad. That's probably because you're favoring your left side. Oh, I am. Yeah. I am. But then, you know, I isolate it and I beast the thing. But I just can't engage it. I can't get a flat leg like I can on my left leg. You get it completely flat if you, you extend mean extended it. it? Yeah. So it bends? Yeah, it's so you can engage all your quads. Oh, it yeah, you've got to get some stem cells in that bad boy. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah, it's, it's the real deal. I mean, it's something special. It's 30 years I've been living with this. <sighs> 
yeah, they can fix you up. They can fix you up. But diet is huge. One of the things about diet is inflammation. And I, I never really wrapped that in my head. until. See, about three or four years ago, I had a pretty significant back injury. And that was, like I was saying, my hands were numb. And it was because I was ignoring it. Because I would pinch it in jujitsu, And then I'd go, oh, I was still going to roll light. I'll just go in there and roll light. And then after a while, it was getting bad to the point my back was locking up. And my hands started going numb. And I'd get this pretty significant elbow pain. So I started really researching all the options and what's really going on. And one of the big ones that I found was diet. That when you have too many inflammation-causing foods in your diet, and you're eating too much sugar and bread and booze and all these different things, that affects it affects like how your body uh, carries fat, but it also affects where your body holds on to inflammation and joints in particular. All the injury spots were way sore. When I had a shitty diet. So give me, give me the evils. Um, as Led Hamilton calls them, the three white devils. Sugar, bread. What's, What's the, the other one? Yeah, what is the other one? Booze. No. It's kind of white. <laughs> the, the foam on beer is white. <laughs> what is it? You should know what the three white well, devils are. Well, it's flour, pasta, sugar. I don't know. What is the other one? Dairy, I guess, maybe? Dairy. There you go. Yeah. I like cheese, though. So do you not drink alcohol? Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. What'd I you just drink? try not to drink too much. I mean, it's like all right. things in moderation, including right, there moderation. Go. There you go. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big drinker. I don't like, I'm not drinking every night, but if I go out, you know, and I have a drink or have a glass of wine with dinner or a couple of glasses, I'm, I'm cool. I think it's just a matter of just controlling yourself. I'm in there. I'm in there. Yeah. That's really the thing. So, uh, the three white devils. Are you? Do you subscribe to Three White Devils? I occasionally will allow myself to to dance with the devil, but the, with all three of them, yeah, with a little bit of sugar, a little bit like last night. I had some linguine with clams. I don't. I go on an eighty twenty, which right. means eighty percent of my Get diet's it. very clean, and then twenty percent I'll fuck off, like whether it's Saturday or Friday or whatever. How do you feel about raw milk? I'm pasteurized. I love. Milk. I love raw milk. It's very exciting. I'm I opening like a little. I'm opening a little raw milk dairy. Are you really? I am. I'm having. I'm very interested in this whole thing. Um, more from a culinary point of view than I am from a uh, nutritional point of view. However, I suspect. I suspect that. There's a sweet spot here. Um, opening a brewery. I love a beer. You're opening a brewery? Opening a brewery, yeah. Which How I mean, much do you know about making beer? Yeah, quite a lot, actually. Have you been doing it on your own? I've and- done all that sort of asking around underneath the stairs routine for years, um, which is great fun. I like any sort of form of caveman chemistry. Mm-hmm. Francis Malman, you know Francis Malman mm-hmm. is, is a big fan of that sort of thing. I'm a bit of a caveman when it comes to anything to do with food, so I do like a nice steak outside. Right. I take my, I'm, I, if I say so myself, um, I'm good on a barbecue, and I've been I've been doing that barbecuing for 20 years. Good on a slow cook, take that all quite seriously. Um, but so yeah, opening brewery, beer. And then when I'm at it, I'm opening a butchers, a bakers, a candlestick makers too. It's got a small hotel. I've got a place in uh, in England, fifteen hundred acres, farm. Got all that sort of nonsense going on. So you're going to do farm to table the whole deal. Yeah, I make fancy your own that. beer. Yeah, raise your own animals, serve them. Yeah, the whole oh, thing. Quite nice. like gin. I just got into gin actually. So gin. Yeah, I mean gin's traditionally an English drink, but I, I wasn't really into it until I came to America, and I found since I've been here in the last over the last week, 
there's been quite a few gin and tonics going on. Yeah. And gin apparently is the easiest of the spirits to make, so I might have a little swing on that too. <laughs> I'm good friends with Maynard Keenan, the lead singer of Tool, and he went essentially for for years just went and developed his own vineyard. And where where is he? Arizona. Ah, right. Yeah, and not in a place in Arizona that's known for growing wine. So he had to manipulate the soil. and I bet he's know. having a lovely time. It's oh, probably, he loves it. Yeah, it's probably quite an expensive lovely time, though, wasn't it? I'm sure. He's making money with it now, but he's he's a, like a legitimate genius, and he's one of those guys that lit- he cannot be stagnant. It's not even an option. I mean, his mind works a 1,000 miles an hour, and you, when you're talking to him, you just got to kind of jump on the train and hang on there with him as long as you can and jump off and go, whew. But he's just a very, very, very intense guy, and his his particular brand of intellectual curiosity led him to start experimenting with wine. His wine is absolutely fantastic, and he's a legitimate wine expert. Like you sit here and talk to him the same way you and I can talk about Buchecha or you know Hodger Gracie or Henzo. He can talk to you about wine, and he's also a purple belt in jiu-jitsu too, so you can talk to him about that as well. <laughs> he's an intense guy. I like the sound of this. The wine business I do find interesting. There's something happening with the whole craft movement in general that's very exciting that we are going back to local stuff and people – to a degree, it's ownership again. Yes. It's take ownership of your food, take ownership of – everything to do with the important components of your life – and it all got robbed from us. Yeah. You know, what happened in the 70s in the UK is all these breweries bought up all the pubs. And they brought up all these small breweries. And used to have all these breweries with their own little crafty beer going on. And then they homogenized it. And then they sold it back to us. And they gave it back to us without character. And we just bought it because we were stupid. Right. Yeah. And then what's happening is, is we realized that character is important. And local character is important. And ownership is important. So there's this movement. um, And to a degree, things like Instagram may have a dark side, but it always has a light side. It's given a voice to the craft movement. Yes. I I like a man that makes his own knives. Yes. Have you followed any of that stuff? Yes. I I order handmade knives all the time. (laughs) That's what I use to, like, cut my food. Like, they feel good. I like it. It's a completely different experience. I have exactly the same thing. We order a lot of handmade knives. And when you're cutting your food with a handmade knife, it's not what it used to be. You realize a knife should be a thing. Yes. And it got robbed from us. Do you know who Steve Kramer is? Uh, no, I'm not sure if I do. He's a guy who makes knives with meteorites. Yes, I do know. Like, I've seen him. I've seen, there's a little thing yes, on YouTube on with him. with Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, Anthony yeah. Oh, Bourdain. no, I've seen it. I've seen the yeah. thing yeah, with Anthony Bourdain, yeah. He, he takes a chunk of it's iron fabu- that came it, from space. It's fabulous. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, I've got a feeling that might have been the uh, genesis of my interest in knives with that anti Bourdain thing. Yeah. There's a guy, Mamousy um, Fire Arts, find that on Instagram, but he just made me this Damascus steel cutting knife and a, and a hunting knife to go with it. And it's just, I mean, I cut with it, but it's just, I, I stare at it for minutes before I cut with it. I look at the blade and the handles made out of thousand year old bog wood, like wood that was like preserved from a bog, like bog maple. It's amazing. I this mean, is just, amazing. But why is it so interesting? But the fact I don't know, is, this is his it stuff. is interesting. Like, look at the pattern in the in the steel. This is Damascus steel. If you go to his Instagram, there's a picture of my knife in there. You could see it. He, this guy is, I mean, he, that's it right there. The far right, the yeah. far right, those two. Those yeah. are the two knives that he made for me. Ooh. 
That's a yeah. sexy bit of kit. Oh, we, fuck we yeah. We modeled Look at our, those. Ancient bog oak. That's what it is. Where's, it, where's the bog from? Is it an American bog? I don't know. I'd have to ask him. I just took his word for it. <laughs> but look at that thing. That's lovely. I mean, that's what uh, I used to cut up garlic. Our sword, Excalibur, we've made out of Damascus steel. Ah, oh, man. Really? Yeah. I'm into a bit of Damascus. Sexy so stuff. did you have a, a bladesmith fashion for your movie? Uh, yeah. Wow. So you had it specifically made for the movie. Yeah. Poor old Charlie Hunnam, who plays King Arthur, is... He's been waiting to receive this sword. How much does it weigh? I mean, this motherfucker had to get in shape for that thing, right? Yeah. Oh, he's in good nick. <sighs> like, you ever do those, um, uh, like, uh, shield yeah. casts with a steel club? Yeah. You realize how difficult it is yeah. to manipulate even a 15-pound club? Yeah. Bit of hard work. Very hard work. But those guys, like, sword fighters must have had intense shoulder strength and, and core strength. Yeah, but they dig these guys up. In the UK, They every now and then they stumble across a body that's a thousand, 500 years old. And they realize the deformity in the shoulders from uh, all of the... Right. Whatever you call that when you pull a bow back. Yeah. Um, and they, it used to be an English law that every Englishman had to practice for eight hours a week to pull back a bow. So you've got all these skeletons that are deformed from the enormous strength of the soldiers of these, uh, on the shoulders deformed of these Deformed how so? Like, what, what is uh, the issue with it? It was the, the sheer... You'll have to, I, Joe, you know a lot mm-hmm. more about this than me. But the, they had become deformed through the development of the muscle, which in some way then changed the... The bone structure The bone itself. structure, yeah. Wow. And we've got these massive, great right arms there's i don't know if you know in the uk you know in this country you do this the finger which is the single finger right in the uk it's two fingers right but why is that it's for bows and arrows right it comes from the english wars and the french wars um and the englishmen were famous for their long bows and the famous battle of agincourt where there was a couple of hundred of us and there was ten thousand of them and they let all the uh, they had um, crossbows back then, and we had this the longbow. The longbow was the machine gun. Yeah, in the uh, bow and arrow world, and because the Brits, that's what they did. They were eight hours a week. Every Englishman had to do that. That they were pretty lethal with these things. Anyway, they annihilated the entire French army. There was this kind of famous battle. The French have conveniently forgotten. Um, so what the French did thereafter, if they ever caught an Englishman, was they chopped off two of his fingers the two ah. fingers that pull back the bow. So whenever, as as history then um, made eloquent, is that whenever you saw a Frenchman, you used to wave the two fingers up at him. Ah. And then since then, it's now just become, you know, the old ubiquitous fuck off sign. Have you seen uh, the way the Mongols did it? The Mongols, they had these incredibly powerful recurve bows. It would take 160 pounds to pull back. And they used their thumb. They would have a, a, a thumb ring made out of bone. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. I do like a mongol, though. They, there's a fantastic audio uh, documentary on a, the history of the Mongols, The Wrath of the Khan with Dan Carlin. Have yep. you ever listen to that? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, Ivan out there is a bit of a fan of yours. That He keeps me up to date on di- different things that you're interested in because ah. he's interested in the same things. I didn't know about the knives. And there's a couple of other things I didn't know that you knew about. But he's a big fan. And he got me onto this. See those things and right he, there? I think he got onto this because you got him onto ah, it. Ah, well, I'm sure. Well, but once you hear Dan Carlin, I mean, it, it is absolutely addictive. But this is the ring that they would put on their thumb and they would pull back like that. 
and then they would wrap their index finger over the thing where the uh, the thumb uh, nail is, and then pull it back that way, and then release. That's how they would release their arrows. Well, it didn't get him very far, did it? Well, it did for a long time until Genghis Khan died. I mean, they killed 10% of the population. They no, killed. No, I mean, I was kidding. Oh, uh, <laughs> joke around. They killed so many people, they changed the carbon footprint of Earth. There was a New York Times article about how many people died during Genghis Khan's reign that it was so significant you could see it in the carbon data. You're kidding. No, no, I'm not kidding. See if you can pull that article. They, he killed between 50 and 70 million people during his lifetime were directly attributed to his army and his decisions. 50 to 70 million people died. The conservative estimate is somewhere around 30. The liberal estimate is somewhere around 70. Nobody really knows, but they think it's between. Look at that. Mongol invasion in 1200 altered carbon dioxide levels. <laughs> <laughs> they killed so many fucking people. But this, they this changed is a time the earth. Where there was probably only a million people kicking around on the earth. I don't know how many people there were. I think well, there was a lot be. more than a million because yeah, they killed be. a million people in Jing, China. They killed they killed people in numbers that we can't even in Jen, I think it was Jen, China, they showed up and this is part of uh, the Dan Carlin series. The um the uh, the Quizman Shaw sent uh like an envoy like a party to go search this uh city in china and as they pulled up they thought what they saw in the distance was a snow-covered mountain as they got closer they realized it was a stack of bones and the roads were so deteriorated from human bodies just rotting human bodies they had abandoned the roads because they couldn't get their cars through their their wheels rather through because their wheels were getting bogged down their horses were getting bogged down in the muck of deteriorating bodies. That's how many people the Mongols killed. What the fuck? <laughs> and was it just a desire for empire? It's a real good question. First of all, it's the dehumanization of the enemy. I mean, his idea was that everybody who doesn't live in a tent, anybody who doesn't live the way they do, these fools that live in cities, they weren't even human. They were sheep. Like they, there was a, a certain disconnect between them and the other, which is in, imperative. It's the most important thing in war. You have to decide that that person is not you, right? You have to decide that they're the other, whether it's the Vietnamese or the German, the Nazis, the Japanese, like whatever it is, you have to decide that they're less than you. And they had this thing about people that did not live like they did, that they were pussies. These, these weak people that lived in these cities with their walls. And so they would just find, find these cities. They'd stroll up and they would just figure out a way to start attacking them. And they would light bodies on fire and launch them with catapults onto the roofs of these buildings. But what was the, what was the motivation? It was just conquering, just conquering. I mean, they just wanted to expand their empire and take over. I mean, it's not, there's no noble pursuit in there. There's no religious pursuit either. I mean, it's a, it was just expansion. Yeah. Well, they just wanted to own it all. They, they felt like everyone they encountered was subject to their rule and they had to, they had to establish that. It's a very, very intense series. No, I remember. I remember I got into about five years ago, and I remember the bone thing. I yeah. copied the bone thing in King Arthur. I've got mountains of bones. Oh, in King nice. Arthur. No, but uh, I do remember some of that. It's funny how things drift. You'd appreciate this. This is a legitimate samurai sword from the 1500s. Oh, really? Yeah, that's a real one. Well, that's quite a sexy time. Yeah. What's this shark skin going on up here? I don't know. I mean, I think that the uh, the case is probably uh, a modern case. 
But that blade itself, that is a, that is a blade from f- somewhere around 1511, they think. How did you get your hands on this? It was a gift. Really? Who from? My uh, business associate, Aubrey Marcus. Really? A good buddy of mine, and um, we're in business at Onnit together, and he gave me this. That's quite a thing. Yeah, it's quite a thing. That's a real thing. It's not one of these blades that once you take out, it's got to draw blood, is it? No, no, no. <laughs> it's a funny thing. We, we got this. Uh, there's a military uh, unit in the UK called the Gurkhas that come from Nepal. It's been mm-hmm. a tradition for a couple of hundred years. And they have these funny little knives with hooks on. Yeah, they're weird knives. Weird knives. And once they draw them, once they're out of their sheath, they're, they're not allowed to put them back until there's got blood on them. So they have to cut themselves so and they they're not going to kill anybody? Yeah. Jesus Christ. That's like a weird excuse to cut yourself. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that, that's like a pretty rigid requirement. Don't draw it unless you're going to draw blood. What can I tell you? Yeah. I mean, being a soldier is tough stuff. It is as tough as it gets. Yeah. Now, that's uh, something about your, your film, I'm sure, is you're dealing with uh, a different time and that life back then, although always precious, the, the finite aspect of life is, is more solidified. It's more obvious. It's more it's something that you're dealing with on a daily basis as opposed to the way we live. Yeah, I think there's all sorts of advantages to that. If you're looking down the barrel of a gun, nothing sobers you up quite like looking down the barrel of a gun. And we've managed to distract ourselves by the comfortable liberal lives that we lead. And that the price for that is that we don't really accept the full accountancy of life so we do give ourselves crutches where you look down the barrel of a gun all your crutches are taken away Mm. so i suppose in different periods of time you didn't have to you didn't have the indulgence of being able to worry about what people thought of you because there were more important things to worry about yeah yeah there were more important things to worry about than social media you had to worry about arrows swords death yeah constant but the thing is that even come back to the mongols so what was his desire for gain his desire for gain was the more people appreciate and respect me then the more i'll be is there anything else that kills people other than that motivation not like that well not even like that i'm just talking about murder right the whole genesis of murder is based on the principle that someone has more power than me, so I have to take that power away. Or my comparative sense of self feels augmented if I can take their life away. Hmm. It all comes back to the same thing. You're really asking someone to tell you who you are. And if you, paradoxically and ironically, if you kill them, that makes you more powerful than them, although they can no longer bear witness, or they did bear witness for a second. But what does bear witness is the story in your mind that somehow you are now more powerful. Or you just fucking hate them. You don't want them around anymore. But why do you hate them? Because they're threatening. Yes. They're threatening to... In some way. They're threatening in some way that, that somehow they can diminish your idea of who you are. Or you find them repugnant, their actions repugnant, dangerous to their society something then that's not murder then is right. it? right it's just eliminating an enemy right or eliminating a threat yeah if you could go back i mean I, i've often thought about this as technology evolves like will there be a will there come a t- point in time where you can have a window to a certain era like will will time machines ever be a thing where there's a time where you can actually go back and view the past like is there a period yeah what is period? there a period that uh, you probably would? quite a lot 
because of Google Earth, I'm one of those. I like a good pawn on Google Earth. So where I live in Wiltshire, I've got a house in English countryside next door to Stonehenge. If you go on Google Earth, where they ploughed the fields, you can see where there have been burial sites for thousands of years. Yeah, right. Stonehenge is about five and a half thousand years old. But all around that area, in these plough fields, you can see they've still got burial mounds and burial mounds and whatnot. And the whole earth is littered with prehistorical earthworks and burial sites. And there are burial sites that we have this thing called Ordnance Survey, which registers, I mean, but you'll have the same thing here, which registers everything on the earth, right? So everything of any historical value, there's a map, and they tell you where the footpaths are and the roads are and everything. It's highly detailed how high the mountains are and the roads and whatnot. And I've, I'm a bit of a anorak for that. Do you know what the expression anorak no. is? It's like a geek. Okay. You know those guys that watch trains and planes and right. they usually wear those jackets called anoraks so that's where the oh, expression okay. comes from so i'm a bit of an anorak for topography the history of topography so you go on google earth this was a bit of a wet dream as far as i was concerned because i could spend hours and hours pouring over landscape and around my house you can find these all these burial sites that no one knows existed and it's only since Google Earth has existed. I'm confident that still I'm the only person that those <laughs> these wow. burial these burial sites exist. So how do you know they're burial sites? Like what are you seeing? Because if you're you can one? you can build up a an understanding of it's pattern recognition again. Mm-hmm. You can see an established burial site, which is seen as a prehistorical burial site, Bronze Age or whatever it is, and then you get a step uh, a mile to the right, and then you can f- find one under a ploughed field where they've got rid of the mounds but you can still see the depressions which is in exactly the same shape as the depressions a mile to the right and then you can build up a whole pattern so you know this is the area where you get crop circles Mm -hmm. yeah so and then you can build up a whole um picture which is a much bigger picture and then you can start to predict where one burial site is going to be and it's a bit like finding treasure and you go oh, 200 that, yards that direction, 200 yards that, and it should be about, and bang, there it is. You can see half of these depressions, and then it runs into a wood or whatever it is. But there's stuff that exists and you wouldn't have known before Google Earth came along. How much work is being done on like trying to study those things? Well, the thing is, it, uh, I'm sure quite a lot, but the thing is, it's prehistorical. So really, right. the only thing that's there is arrowheads. Right. Right, and burial mounts. And every now and then they dig one up, and then they find a a boat buried with lots of gold in it yeah. and, whatnot. and that happens every now and then um, but there isn't much evidence that it was left behind so you know most of these things are just a mound of earth with a few bones in but it's kind of crazy because that's an area where people have been living for thousands of years it's not like people went away and then came back and now you're trying to like people have consistently lived in that area like and then the, you see things like that horse that stone horse in the, in the yeah. countryside yeah the chalk horse yeah like there's Where, one there's a big man with a big willy too, who's made out of chalk. There's oh, a I've horse who's made out of chalk. You, you, you big, uh, look him up. He's a uh, uh, man with the big white willy. Um, and all in that area, that you have these different emblems of what represented tribes or whatever. So we now live in the UK, which is the United Kingdom, but there is a legacy there. I mean, you'll have the same here. There is a legacy there that you can. You can trace back 
step by step for thousands of years. And we get, you know, I get my nut around the Romans. Right. That was a couple of thousand years ago. And the Romans been kicking around the UK a couple of thousand years. And then they went and then came the Saxons. Um, and then after the Saxons, then the French came in. And then the French basically took over the UK in 1066. And then you have the culture that we have now. But you can see, you somehow you forget that it go that your culture goes on for thousands of years, and you accept really what we see as history is the last six thousand years or five thousand years. But when you can have a connection to it, and it goes back further than that. It's hard to get your nut around the Romans. Never yeah. mind the Bronze Age. Yeah, and I'm, what is that? There's the guy with the big willy. Holy shit! What an odd. And how old is that? Don't know. Did it say how old it is? There's lots of that that goes on around. Can you imagine farms. that guy running at you, fully erect, with a giant club. How strange! And there's a bunch of these, and they do they understand the origins of these things? Do they know where they came from? I don't know. Is the answer to that? Th- these wow. these are later. They look quite primitive, though, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> I think these are later. How strange! But that whole area is littered in this sort of paraphernalia if you will yeah and they don't necessarily know who did it or why no but what's exciting to someone like me is that you aren't going through any other conduit and i suppose it's what it is it's the mystery it's the mythology of all of this but it's your road into it as an individual you're not going through any history books right you're seeing it and it's like discovering treasure you can access it on your own on Google Earth, and mm. you're thinking, "Is anyone else doing this? Right. And why would they be doing it?" I started doing it because I wanted to see—I can't remember—some aspect on some part of my land. And before I know, oh look, there's a burial site up there. I'll have a little look. And then before you know it, breadcrumbs lead to bakeries, and you find yourself filling your boots with all the uh, pastries in the world. Mm. Um, and there's something very exciting about that. So, in reference to what it was that you said earlier, if I could go back to any time. I'd like to go back for a minute. I'm not, mm. sure. I'm not sure if I'd like to go back for, for long. I see that the period that we're living in is the most exciting period to live on this planet. And not, not least so because of what we've been talking about, stem cells. Mm. Is that going to be the thing that uh, allows you and I to age more gracefully and without so much pain? We have enough wealth that we can live a comfortable life if you decide if you choose to live a comfortable life we have medicine that we've never had before in this period in history it is we're still complaining we're still complaining but if we could just remember what we are comparatively where the position we are in history comparatively it's an end to all complaints yeah, comparatively, for sure. It's interesting, too, when you're talking about this, the use of technology and how what you can do now with stem cells in comparison to the past. It's like this really exciting, emerging time. But similar, like the use of Google Earth to discover these mounds and things. If you see what's going on in the, in the Amazon now, they're, they're discovering evidence of civilizations that were just rumors and myths, like the Gold City, the ancient Gold City. That there's that, what is that movie that they're doing? Lost City of Z. Lost City of Z, yes. Yeah. 
um, they're finding these established uh, irrigation paths and city grids in the Amazon jungle, thousands and thousands of years old, and they don't know the origins. They don't know who was there. They don't know why they're constructed, what the culture was like. But this was all, at one point in time, just mythological. And now they're realizing, like, no, 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 this is history. And this is, they've been told and passed down in these fables. And now we're understanding there's an actual, there's a concrete, a physical grid, rather, that you can go and you could see. Like, no, these are real cities that did exist. And the jungle has sort of engulfed them. It's taken over them. It's uh, amazing. Yeah. It's a thing, Google Earth. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, it's allowing, and this is only step one. I think Google Earth is going to give way to some sort of a magnetic resonance type thing where they're going to be able to look deep into the ground. I think what we're seeing now is you're, you're going to be able to, you're, right now we're exploring the surface of the Earth, and we're finding all these characteristics that, oh, this is a body, or this is a, uh, a burial area, this is a, a pathway that was probably irrigation. But I think they're going to be able to come up with technology that allows you to do the same thing, but look deep into the ground. And then I think you're going to be able to find all kinds of crazy shit. The same way they can understand, like, the complete topography of the bottom of the ocean now. And if you look at some of those maps that show the ocean and literally shows the depths at every stage, you're, I think you're going to be able to do that deep into the surface of the ground. They're going to be able to discover all kinds of crazy stuff. Someone keeps opening that door. What are you saying? We got to get going. This is why I don't allow people to come. You're ruining a perfect goddamn conversation. Way, that's Ivan. I know. Ivan's a great guy. He's your you biggest got, fan. I'm, I'm a big fan of him. You got some other uh, commitments, I guess, huh? I do. God yeah. damn it. I'm selling a film. I know. Joe, you go and see it. You like it. Fuck yeah, I'm going to go see it. I, I love all your movies, man. I'm a big fan. Thank I was you. really excited to have you in here. So, uh, when is it out this weekend? Not this weekend. Next weekend. So, that is Ivan. Do you want to stick your head back in here? No, Ivan's he's he's out scared there. now. You scared him oh, off. Ivan. I th if it's not this weekend, it's next weekend. Is that May the 12th? It's the weekend after Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes. So I believe that is May the 12th, right? Excited about it? Yeah, I love the film. I like it. Well, it's I, tough out there, though, brother. I bet it is. Tough. You've got a crazy business. When you decide, and I'll just leave you with this, when you decide like to commit to an idea, I'm sure you have a gang of ideas bouncing around your head. To, like, What makes you just go, all right, this is the one. Let's run with it. Tell you, it's changing, and it changes by the year. My next movie is Aladdin. Oh, really? Yeah. Like the magic lamp? That's the one. Really? Yeah. Well, and in no small part, because you'll know you'll get a weekend. Ah, right. So that plays a little bit of a factor in your motivation. Well, it has to. You don't want to spend three years on a movie and no one hear about it. Right. Aladdin, though, by you would be very fascinating. I hope so. I'll find it, you know, I like the idea of taking... A sojourn into genres that I don't know anything about, really. So has it kind of excited you, like, doing this King Arthur thing and, and, and this fantasy genre? And has this sort of uh, changed your expectations for possibly considering other... Yeah, I mean, I sort of did English gangster films, and I went from yeah. that, and I did Sherlock Holmes. Don't stop I, doing those, though. Well, your English gangster films no, 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 are some of my I'm favorite TV. films ever. This could be TV. It could be TV. Oh. We have lots of that now. Because that's where it's gone. That sort of interesting like stuff. Like Netflix, HBO type yeah, stuff? that sort yeah. of stuff. Um... And then Man from Uncle, which is like a spy thing, and then he jumped into spy genre. So, and you go, all oh, right, okay, I can go from this genre to that genre, and that's exciting. And I've got five kids, and you got five five kids. kids. Yeah, wow. Which means I'm familiar with Disney, right? Of course. Um, so, yeah, all that that world looks very attractive and challenging. Awesome, Guy Ritchie, you're a bad motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you, Joe. I love having you in here. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I've enjoyed it enormously. Oh, let's do it again. All right. Next time you're selling something, come on in, baby. Thank you now. All right, folks. That's it for the week. We'll see you soon. Bye. Much love. How cool was that guy? Pretty badass, right? God damn, this podcast is fun. I get to meet some of the coolest fucking people. That only that guy didn't come in and cock block at an hour and a half in. All these other fucking... He was like... Guy Ritchie was like, I got all the time in the world. The other guy was like, no, you don't, bitch. <laughs> Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Caveman Coffee. Go to cavemancoffeeco.com. Use the code word Rogan. Save 10%. Thanks also to Lyft. You should drive with Lyft and make some motherfucking money. Go to lyft.com, L-Y-F-T dot com forward slash Rogan today and you can get a $500 new driver bonus. That's lyft.com forward slash Rogan. Limited time only. Limited, my friends. And terms apply. Thank you also to Policy Genius. Get yourself some motherfucking life insurance at a great rate. Go to policygenius.com. That's P O L I C Y G E N I U S.com. And get yourself some awesome life insurance made easy. Free quotes. Couldn't you say quotes? I almost got it out. Free quotes. Free quotes. Zero hassle. Peace of mind. Don't wait. Go to policygenius.com today. Or wait, how about that? This fucking world, everybody's in such a rush. Sit down, have a cup of tea, put your feet up, and then go to policygenius.com. We're also brought to you by Onnit. O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word ROGAN and save 10% off any and all supplements. Folks, that's it for this week. We got a lot of good stuff coming up, though. A lot of good stuff. Next week, Jordan Peterson is going to be here. Mick West from Metabunk.com. I can't believe we have to do this. But we're going to go over all the problems with the flat earth theory and many other really dumb conspiracy theories. We're going to break these down. Mick West runs a website designed to debunk ridiculous ideas with actual science and hard facts. I know that's so confusing to people, and I know you're going to go, he's a government shill, the government. He's not. He's just a really fucking smart guy who hates retards. And he, when I say that, I don't mean like a person with a disease. I mean like, you know what I mean. You know what the fuck I mean, god damn it. Sensitive world and sensitive people. Uh, Jordan Peterson and Mick West. They'll be here next week, and then uh, next weekend, I'll see you freaks in Dallas. I'm very excited for the UFC that weekend. Heavyweight Championship of the World, Junior Dos Santos challenges Stipe Miocic and Joanna Janjacek, one of the most dominant champions in the world today, the uh, UFC strawweight master. She takes on Jessica Andrade in an awesome fight. That should be pretty badass, and a lot of great, great undercard fights as well including uh, Damian Maya versus Jorge Masvidal, Yair Rodriguez versus Frankie Edgar. Holy shit, I'm looking forward to that. That should be awesome. So, uh, and then uh, the weekend after that, or the week after that, folks, is when I have Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, and Michael Shermer all together. And we're going to go deep about their their idea. I mean, Michael Shermer is a literal professional skeptic. 
So this should be really fascinating. He was quite skeptical of these ideas of uh, asteroidal impacts causing the end of the ice age and massive flooding all over the world. But as time has gone on, including uh, an article that was published last week um, in a lot of these um, online news sources that was showing what they believe now to be one of the etchings on Gobekli Tepe, that it is depicting a comet impacting the Earth, which makes sense because uh, Gobekli Tepe was um, supposedly somewhere around that era, somewhere around 12,000 years ago. So they think uh, that might be what what caused all this. It's going to be really fun stuff, though, really interesting, and interesting to see these guys gear up to deal with someone who's skeptical. Michael Shermer has been researching the subject pretty uh, intensely, and uh, he's really excited about it as well and should be uh, a good time. And he's actually more open to the ideas um, based on science than he was before uh, he you know, peripherally looked at all this stuff. So that should be great. Uh, Everlast to be back as well. He's recovered from his uh, illness. Got a lot of great shit happening, folks. I'm super pumped. So I'll see you folks soon. Okay? All right. Bye-bye. Big kiss. Mwah.